Friends, what a great privilege it is for me, for my family, to be with you today. Are you, are you getting me out of the microphone? Yes? Do you need me to do something here? What a great privilege it is for me to be with you today. You are God's gift to us. During this Christmas season, we receive you as a gift, myself and my family. Friends, at Central Baptist, we are a word-centered church. We proclaim the gospel for the hope of the nations. We proclaim the gospel for the edification of the church. And we proclaim the gospel for the glory of God in Christ. So today, we're going to consider God's word. You should have a handout for the sermon. If you don't have a handout for the sermon, would you raise your hand? The gentleman in the back will make sure that you get one so that you can follow the sermon. Our sermon text for today is out of Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. And this is what the word of the Lord says. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. How are your abilities to stick to a plan? Are you good at planning? Some of us are. Some of us want to be. Some of us wish we were. And some of us just don't care at all. Isn't that true? So I've been trying to figure out my way around here in Melbourne a bit. And I really haven't gone to too many places. But sure, I've gone back and forth between home and the office a lot. The plan is simple, okay? You make a left on country club. You make a left on university. And then you make a right on Babcock. And then I'm home. But for some reason, I keep doing this. Left on country club, left on university, and left on Babcock. And I keep finding myself running out of city. Well, eventually, eventually, I'll figure it out. But a a plan is simple, but the execution is poor. The opposite is true of God. Isn't it? Look at how Scripture attests to God's ability to stick with a plan. Numbers 23 19, God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. He has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, or will he not fulfill it? 1 Kings 8 56. Blessed be the Lord who has given rest to his people Israel according to all that he promised. Not one word has failed of all his good promise, which he spoke by Moses, his servant. Romans 4, 20 and 21. No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promises of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. 
2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. This is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Finally, Hebrews 10.23. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. God is faithful to his promises. He makes promises unto us and he keeps them. Not only is God faithful, he is willing and able. And the promises he makes, he will keep. Christmas is a great time for us to think about God's promises, isn't it? The Old Testament alone has over 300 prophecies that are fulfilled during Christmas time. Christianity stands or falls on God's willingness and ability to keep His promises. So Christmas, because in Christmas... God has fulfilled so many of His promises. Christmas stands as a clear reminder that God is always true to His promises. Now, I want you to have one thought today guiding you through this entire message, okay? Here's my guiding thought, which is also my outline. A perfect plan is only accomplished by a perfect person with a perfect promise. Our passage for today is from the book of Galatians. Perhaps that that strikes you as an odd book to go to for a Christmas sermon. Uh, Perhaps you're expecting something from Isaiah or Micah, or perhaps something from the Gospels, Matthew and Luke. And, And these are great books to go to for Christmas. But I think If you stick with me for the next several minutes, you're going to see that Paul in Galatians actually help us understand profoundly the meaning of Christmas. Paul in Galatians helps us understand the deep meaning and purpose of Christmas within the person of Christ. So before we jump into Galatians 4, here's a brief brief background on Galatians. Galatians is perhaps Paul's earliest letter. It was written right around the Jerusalem council time. Paul is initially encouraged with the believers in the churches in Galatia because they had started their walk well by faith in Christ. They had understood that Christ plus nothing equals everything. But with the infiltration of false teachers, the believers became confused. And and Paul tells them, uh, Galatians, who has bewitched you? Did you not start this race well by faith? And now, why do you believe that you are sanctified by works? The Galatians began believing that justification wasn't merely a work of faith, but it was a work of faith plus the keeping of the Old Covenant law. 
In our text today, Paul argues that Christ alone, nothing added, is able to work out our salvation. So, so let's dive into our text. So my first point is a perfect plan. During Christmas, we consider a perfect plan. In verse 4, Paul begins with the words, but when the fullness of time had come. Throughout Galatians, Paul has been making the point that salvation with Christ plus the law is futile. It doesn't work. When you add anything to Christ, you don't have Christ at all. The law was meant to lead us to Christ, but once Christ came, the law fulfilled its purpose. But unlike the law that was temporary, Christ came in the fullness of time. I've spent a lot of time trying to understand what this means this week. What does it mean that Christ came in the fullness of time. Now, it's interesting. There are two main words that Paul could have used here for time. He could have used the word kairos, which means an appointed time. But he doesn't use that word. Instead, he uses the word chronos, which is a generic word for time. You, you may hear the word in the English word Chronology. And I was wondering why, because kairos sounds like such a purposeful word. And, and certainly, God was purposeful in the sending of Jesus. Why not use the more purposeful word rather than the general word? Finally, I understood that Paul was not saying that Jesus came merely at a specific time. There's nothing remarkable about there is that. You came at a specific time. I came at a specific time. Everyone that has come has come at a specific time. But what Paul wants us to understand here is that God's plan to send his son was the fulfillment of time. All of time, all of history pointed to the coming of Christ. Christ and His coming is what history is all about. Not just a merely point, not merely just a point in time, but all of history pointed to the coming of Christ. Christ is the center of history he is the purpose of it all. There's a teaching for us here, isn't there? When we look at history, be it so-called secular history or not, we need to look at it all, understanding that the purpose of all things was to reveal Christ. Our calendars agree with this. There's a reason why today is 2021. Jesus' birth divided history in half. In archaic language, we would have said, today is December 19, 2021, the year of our Lord. 
This is the time of the year when we consider the advent of Christ. And this event is the fulfillment of history. Now, it's also the time of the year that we see those bumper stickers. Jesus is the reason for the season. And I love those bumper stickers. And if you have those bumper stickers in your cart, I'm not judging you. You should keep it because he is the reason for this season. But he's so much more than that. And this is the point that Paul is making here. Christ is the reason for every season. He is the one that history bows to. Everything that was created was created for his glory. Even history itself. Some may think that the fullness of time refers to historical events like the Roman roads that enabled the gospel to go through the entire Roman Empire. Or perhaps some would say the fullness of time refers to the Pax Romana, the period of peace that the world experienced because of Roman domination. And because there is peace, it's easier to proclaim the gospel. Others could say that the fullness of time refers to the common Greek language that was the lingua franca spoken throughout the empire. It made it easier for the gospel to be written down and shared with others. And I don't want to deny that God used all of these things to proclaim the gospel to all nations. I don't want to deny that these things were appropriate for the coming of Christ to be known throughout the earth. But I want to argue that none of these things are what Paul is referring to here as the fullness of time. The fullness of time refers to God's purpose from the beginning to send Christ. Historian Christopher Dawson once said, Christmas is the hinge upon which all human history turns. Does that, does that make sense? So doors have hinges, right? And doors turn and, and they depend on that hinge to stand. And what he's saying is all of history hinges on Christmas. What a stunning statement. But it's true. And there's more than can be, that can be said about other events in Jesus' life, like Christmas would be nothing without Easter. That is true. And, and if you want to think more about this, be here for Christmas Eve, because we're going to be considering the name of Christ and the purpose behind His name. It is true that Christmas would be nothing with Jesus' perfect, sinless life. It is true. It is true that Christmas would mean nothing if Jesus did not ascend to the right hand of the Father and sent us the Holy Spirit. It is true. It is true that Christmas wouldn't mean anything if Jesus could not keep the promises that He will return again. All these things are true, but Christmas is special because it is during Christmas that history turns. All of these events 
from the life of Christ depend on the advent of Christ at Christmas. So, if this is true, let us not make Christmas about anything else other than Christ. Now, I'm not about to kill Santa Claus here, okay? But I am. Christmas is not about Santa. Christmas is not about imaginary figures that puzzle and confuse our children. Now, I think we can, we can handle Santa in a sweet and realistic way, right? We don't need to be so afraid of Santa that we forget that there are way more dangerous things in the world for the spiritual lives of our children. So I don't want to be radical here, but if Santa is the center of Christmas, we miss the Christmas part of Christmas. One great way to incorporate Santa Claus in, during Christmas is to actually share with your children the story of St. Nicholas, who was a bishop in the early church, who was kind towards children and enjoyed gift-giving. And, and, and the reason why he was kind and generous is because he believed in Christ, the real purpose of Christmas. That's good. You don't need to be radical. But, but... If we're going to understand Paul's words here, Christmas is about Christ. We don't want to make Christmas about gift-giving either. Gift-giving is a good thing. But, but when children look forward to gift-giving more than the giver of all gifts, they will misunderstand the purpose of Christmas. God sent forth His Son. That is the true Christmas gift. And all other gifts need to remind us and remind our children that our greatest gift is Christ himself. Without him, no other gift is worth anything. Christmas is not ultimately about family reunions. Family reunions are sweets, but I don't know about you, but I've experienced some family reunions that were not so sweet. And when we put so much emphasis on family reunion, there's such a great pressure for that to work so that Christmas can be purposeful. And when it doesn't deliver, disappointment settles. Disappointment comes in. Friends, we need to know that the purpose of Christmas is greater than anything that we can receive or even give. The purpose of Christmas is that God sent His Son for our good, for our joy, and for His glory. The purpose of Christmas is Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1.16. For by Him, that is Christ, all things were created... That means he owns everything, right? If you create, you own. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Now listen to these words. All things were created through him and, don't miss these two words, for him. The whole creation is created for the glory of Christ. That means 
at Christmas, we remember that Christ is the one that must be praised and exalted. And yes, we enjoy good things, but we do so for His glory. Now, if Paul is making the argument here that Christ is the center of history, if Paul is making the argument here that all things hinge on the advent of Christ, there are a few ways that our lives should be affected by this thought. First of all, this should completely affect the way we read our Bibles, doesn't it? As we read our Bibles, Old and New Testament, we need to ask the question, how is Christ being revealed here? We are not at the center of Scripture, and neither is any other created institution. Christ is the head of all. This should also affect the way we view God's providence. God's plan to save humanity was His plan all along. Jesus is not God's plan B. Jesus is the plan. He is God's plan A. He intended to send Him from the very beginning, from before creation. God did not look down upon humanity and realized that we sinned and thought, whoops, what do I do now? God's glory in Christ was the purpose from the very beginning. Listen to how Paul puts this in 2 Timothy 1.9. God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus when? Before the ages began. Friends, God's providence towards us is not reactional. God does not look at our life's circumstance and then decides what we need. Our life's circumstances are God's very providence for us so that we walk in faith, so that we walk resting in Christ, knowing that our citizenship does not belong to this world but to the world to come. So whether we're facing hardship or a season of extreme blessing, it is God's providence that is guiding us through life, day in and day out. Kevin, Kim, and I were talking this week about the background of the process of pastoral search because the emails that Kevin and I exchanged in the past four months could, could become a book so many that we, we went through. Kevin is a very thorough person. I like to be thorough as well. So we were just talking. So, so what was happening in the background when you emailed this? What was happening in the background when you emailed that? And it was so beautiful to see these things because even in the things that seemed coincidental or erroneous, we were seeing the providence of God in the process. We were seeing that God was working in... in in my heart, in my wife's heart, in your heart, in the hearts of the leaders at Sheridan Hills Baptist Church, to bring about good, to bring about the glory of His name. Friends, let us not think, right? Let us not think that God is involved with the things that we perceive to be good, but He has nothing to do with the things that seem to be harsh and hard and difficult God is in the midst of it all. 
History is God's history. It belongs to Him. He dictates it. He tells it where to go, and it goes. So when things seem to be going array in your life, trust the God who delivers His promises, even as things seem to be at a point of collapse. God is at work when all seems to be going well and when nothing seems to be going well at all. Remember the words of Job. Shall we receive good from God and not evil? And then we hear the comments. And in all that Job said, he did not sin. Meaning, he spoke rightly of God. Here's what I want you to have. Here's what I want to give you as your pastor. I want your theology of God to be big. I want you to realize that there is not one thought that you can have of God that is, not, that is too grand, too grandiose, too big, too lofty. God is greater than we can ever imagine. He is the greatest conceivable or beyond conception being. So let us have a great, big, theology of God when things are well and when we perceive them to not be going well. Why? Because of Romans 8, 28. Listen to this. And we know that for God, for those who love God, all things, not some things, not most things, not the good things, but all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Now you may be seeing, Pastor, you don't know the suffering that I've experienced or that I am experiencing in life right now. And I, I am certain I don't. But I am not the one who is sovereign and the one who knows all things and the one who guides your life through providence. It is the God Almighty who does. And He knows. And friend, if you're going through a season of hardship and if you're going through a season of suffering... Take heart. Keep your eyes in eternity because you will arrive at a place where tears will be no more, where suffering will be no more, and you will understand that every tear you've shed was kept in God's bottle, and He will redeem it all. Walk by faith. It's time of that, not by sight. Christmas season is a season of joy, but for some, it's a season of sorrow, mourning, and loneliness. So you may say, how can I help? How can I help those that during this season perhaps miss a loved one? How can you help those that during this season perhaps wish that their relationships were in better shape? How can you help those that during this season will only find sorrow and suffering. Well, Christmas is a good time for us to be praying for one another. Pray that our hope would be in the Lord, but also that in joy or in sorrow, we would know that God is working His perfect plan in our lives. We must be a church that is characterized by prayer. If you are at all available Wednesday evenings, not for the two next two Wednesdays, you should join us as we pray together at a church, as a church. 
But let's get even, even more practical here. One, one, one step further. Prayer is very practical. But here's something else that we can do. Purposefully spend time with those who might find this season especially lonely and difficult. Invite others to your home for Christmas. Step into God's plan and bless others with the love that Christ has extended to you. May your dinner table for Christmas, I'm sorry, I, I celebrate the 24th, so a little bit of Spanish tradition here, or your lunch table at Christmas on the 25th, may it be filled with those that are coming to you because you show them the love of Christ. But I said that we need uh, that we need a perfect we need a perfect plan, right? But we also need a perfect person. A good plan can only be accomplished by a good person. A perfect plan can only be accomplished by a perfect person. We got a lot of information about Jesus here in this section of the text. Paul says in the second half of verse 4, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. So what do we learn here about Jesus? First we learn that Jesus is God. God sent forth His Son. He is of the same essence. John 1.1, by the way, we're going to be looking at this text tonight, if you're able to come, would love to see you here. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That settles it. Jesus is God. But there's more. Romans 9.5, to them, to the Israelites, belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is, Christ, is the Christ, who is God over all. Blessed forever. Amen. But wait, there's more. Hebrews 1.18. But of the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Jesus is God. The biblical evidence is clear. And if He is God, He is therefore eternal. We have to keep that in mind. Because, because we can't think that the second person of the Trinity begins in the advent of Christmas. He always existed. He existed with the Father before. That is why the Father is able to send Him forth. The Son of God always existed with God. As God, He is uncreated. He is the author of creation. As God, He is worthy of worship. As God, He is perfect. And therefore, able to present a perfect sacrifice. This is the mission for which God sent forth His Son. But He is also a man. You hear these words, born of a woman. He is both fully God and fully man. 
By the way, the church traditionally has not used the words 100% because Jesus is not 200%. So the church, in its tradition, has used the words truly or fully God and truly and fully man. In his experience as God, he is completely God, lacking nothing. In his experience as man, he is completely man, lacking nothing. So Paul chooses the words here, born of a woman. Now, again, to be born of a woman is not a remarkable thing, right? You were born of a woman. I was born of a woman. We were all born of women. So why is this? Why does Paul choose this phrase? Because if the Son of God is born of a woman, that is remarkable. That the Son of God would take on flesh. The humiliation of Christ. Think think Philippians 2. That is remarkable. And why? So that he could identify with all humanity. If Christ had not come, God would be beyond us, inaccessible. But because Christ came and took on flesh, therefore, a relationship with God is possible. And who initiates this? God does. He sends forth his son. Now, I love identifying with my son, right? So I remember when he was born, there was that debate, who does he look like? And I wanted him to look exclusively like me. And and, and Indy would keep reminding me, but his eyes are mine. And I would say, you can keep the eyes, the rest is mine. Although, it's a good thing that he also looks like his mom because she improves the looks. So, does he look like me or does he look like Andy? Well, well, I want him to look like me because I want to identify with him. And, And I love the fact that sometimes when I look at him, I think he came from me. He has done nothing to deserve that love. But I freely give it to him. Why? Well, the answer is simple. Just because. Simply because I love him. One of the ways that I tried to identify with Boaz was was by giving him a soccer ball even before he was born. And and I, I was certain that he would take on my sport so that I could teach him. And, and as Boaz started to move and started to become a little more athletic, sure he liked the soccer ball, but he would pick it up and throw it through the hoop. And I realized that, and I realized that my son will not follow my footsteps. He's actually a very good basketball player. I can show you a video later. And I realized that he actually needed a basketball. So I purchased him a basketball, and sometimes we try to kick the ball around, but he loves throwing the ball in through the hoop. And, 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 and that's okay. That's okay. We can take on basketball. If that's where he's going, I'm going with him because I love him and I want to identify 
with Him. But why do we so often desire to identify with our children? It is because we love them, isn't it? It is because we want to be around them. It's because they please us. And friends, that is true of God. He wants to identify with you because He loves you. And He wants to be with you. And He wants to have a relationship with you. Now, God does not need you. And that's the big difference. We need God. We need Him to identify with us. Now, He was born of a woman, and this is how He identifies with us, right? And now... It's interesting because the same phrase is used in the book of Job. And, and Job's friend, Eliphaz, helps us consider this phrase, and, and he helps us understand a little bit more of what Christ has done. In Job 15, 14, the, the, the friends of Job are speaking to him, and much of what they're speaking is true, not all, but much of what they're speaking is true. So Eliphaz says this, what is man that he can be pure? And then here's a parallel phrase. And he who is born of a woman, that's another way of saying man, that he can be righteous. This is a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious. It is not possible for those who are born of a woman to be righteous. All who are born of a woman Receive their original sin. All who are born of a woman are born of Adam. Not only is sin birthed in us, but we give evidence of that as we choose to sin. So how could Jesus, the spotless Lamb of God, be called or be referred to as someone who is born of a woman because Jesus is also of God. He's conceived through the Holy Spirit. So he does not inherit that which we've inherited from our father, Adam. He brings together humanity and divinity. This is what theologians call the hypostatic union. And it is a great mystery. Because as Jesus is born of a woman, he's able to represent us in like the same way that Adam represents us. But from Adam, we receive sin. But when we're born of Christ, we receive his righteousness. Listen to how Paul, how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. 21 and 22, for as by a man, that is Adam, came death, by a man, that is Christ, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, all died. That's all of humanity. By the way, that's what Adam means, humanity, man or humanity. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is the essence of the gospel. This is the essence of the message we proclaim. Friends, we were all born dead in our trespasses and our sins. We were not just bruised or broken, 
we were not just sick. If that was the case, we could better ourselves. We were dead. And the dead can do nothing. But in Christ, by faith, we're made alive. So do you sometimes think about God and say, I love God? Do you sometimes read the Word of God and think, and think, man, God's Word is so incredible? Do you sometimes look at God's people and say, I love these people? You know why that is? It's because you've been born of Christ. You've been born again. You've been given new life. Friends, this is the message we proclaim. We want you to be changed. We want you to be transformed. And you can only be transformed if you're born of Christ. Our call to you today, if you're a visitor with us and you don't know Christ, is that you would come to Him, is that this Christmas, your tradition would become truth. That you would bring together tradition and truth and that you would know that Christmas is about Christ. He came because you needed Him. He came because without Him, your destiny would be hell. And that would be no hope. But in Christ, there is hope for this life and for the life to come. Friends, do you want to have peace when you put your head in your pillow and know that God is not angry with you, that God is not judging you? Come to Christ. Turn to Christ and live during the season. Embrace the message of Christ. He came to seek and save the lost. And we were all the lost at a point. Would you embrace Christ? Would you come to Him? And would you live? Now there's another qualification here for the perfect person. Born under the law. This means Jesus was a Jew. And could therefore fulfill the law. Now, it is important for us to consider this. Jesus is placing himself under the law, but not in the same way that we would be found under the law. Because Jesus is not enslaved to the law, but Jesus is someone who has power over the law. So much so that he obeys it perfectly. And, and I want to say more about who is under the law in my next point. So hold on to that thought, okay? But we were born under the law without choice. But Jesus chooses to put himself under the law. Now, you may have heard this illustration of a defendant coming before a judge who condemns them and, and, and gives them a fine to be paid. And, and, and this judge turns around and gives a payment for the judgment. Now, that's, that's an okay illustration, but I think it falls short of what, what the cross actually means in many ways. Why? Because the judge is also under the law. The judge is simply enforcing the law. As a law enforcer, the law has power over him the same way it has power over all of us. So the judge can't ultimately, can't ultimately pay for the penalty. Right? Have you thought about this? 
that, that illustration works if it's a cash payment. But what about murder? But, but what about theft? Can a judge pay for those? So this illustration falls short because Christ can. Jesus can pay for every sin. And here's why. The judge represents the law, but Jesus is the source of the law. The law of God emanates from him. The law of God comes from God. And therefore, God has authority over the law. The judge is less than the law, but Jesus is greater than the law. Remember what Jesus said over and over in the Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said in the past, but I say unto you. When God speaks of his son twice in his baptism and in the Mount of Transfiguration, he says, this is my beloved son of whom I am, on whom, of whom I am well pleased. And then he says this, listen to him. Jesus is the law. The law comes from him. He is the source of the law. When Jesus speaks, he determines what is right and what is wrong. I was talking to a man this week. And he was telling me that we decide what is right and what is wrong. The Bible doesn't tell us those things. And I had to push back because I had to tell him, uh, so can I make that decision? Can you make that decision? Can a wicked murderer, rapist make that decision? Who can make that decision? This man wanted to be a law unto himself because the law of God offended him. But we must say with the psalmist, our delight is in the law of God that emanates, that comes out from Christ himself. Jesus being God is the source of the law himself, and yet he subjugates himself to the law. Why? To free us, in order to free us. Jesus' perfect obedience to the law is your perfect obedience to the law. Do you realize this? Brothers and sisters, do you realize that God is pleased with you because of Christ's obedience? Friends, do you, do you realize that you can be right with God if you turn to Christ and believe in Him? today because Christ fulfilled the law. The message of Christmas is a message of hope, and this is the hope we offer to you today, both to believers and unbelievers. Now, finally, let's consider the perfect promise. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born of a virgin, in order to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as it was necessary for God to make himself low. And friends, this is only possible in Christianity because it is only in Christianity that God is also man. The prophet Isaiah speaks of this even in the Old Testament as he looks forward to our relationship with God through Christ. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, 
This is the God who transcends all things. And also with him who is of contrite spirits and low, contrite and lowly spirits to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is a great God. And he's humble. No other so-called God is able to say this because no other so-called God can say that they're God and man. In verse 5, I need to point this out, the words to and the word so that are the same word. They both denote purpose. And they refer back to the words, God sent forth his son. So if, if, you, if, you, if you mark your Bible, which I don't, but if you do, or if you want to mark the paper in front of you, the handouts, you can put a circle around God sent forth his son and then an arrow to, to redeem and so that we could receive. And you're going to see the relationship there between the clauses. So what was God's purpose in sending Jesus? It is to redeem and to adopt those who are under the law. Redemption was a common used word in the markets, in the ancient markets, referring to the price it would cost to buy someone out of slavery. The law enslaved those who couldn't keep it. And freedom from the law came with a cost. If you want to know more about this, go back and read Galatians 3, or you can also read Romans 6 and 7, and you'll see bondage to the law versus freedom in Christ. But who was under the law? That's an important question to answer, because Christ is redeeming those who are under the law. Is this referring to us? This is an important question, but a complex one. The law was given in the Mosaic Covenant to the Jews. But Paul is not making an argument of exclusivity here to the Jews. If you read Galatians, you see that this is very much about the redemption of all people. Paul is talking in inclusive language in this book. He's referring to all humanity. So how could Paul talk about those under the law and also talk about the redemption of all of humanity? How can we reconcile these two things? So here's my thoughts. The law of God is eternal. Remember what I said earlier? The law emanates from Christ. The law emanates from God. The law comes from God. So murder was wrong from the beginning, wasn't it? Before the law was given. Lying was wrong from the beginning, wasn't it? Even before the law was given. The law of God is summarized and codified in the Ten Commandments, but all of humanity owes obedience to God and His eternal law. No one falls outside of God's control and everyone owes allegiance to God. God is the God of all the earth. So friend, if you're here with us today and you're not a Christian, I want you to know that God is Lord over you. And he calls 
you to obey him. How do you obey him? Obey him by believing him and taking him at his word. Obey him by confessing your sin and recognizing that you need Jesus' sacrifice to wash you clean. Friends, the message of the gospel is the message of a baby who came, lived a perfect life, died an undeserving death, resurrected on the third day, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he tells us, anyone who would believe that that death was in my stead, that that death was in my place, that that death was on my behalf, will have their sins paid for. Friends, this is the message that we want you to embrace today. This is the message that we want you to embrace this Christmas. But redemption is not the only thing promised as Jesus comes. God also promises adoption. And adoption is an act of grace. It is not deserved, it is not earned, but adoption comes with great privileges. Adoption comes with identity and inheritance. We all love the great reversal stories, don't we? The rags to riches, the vindication of the wrongly accused, the Cinderella story. On Friday, Indy and I and Boaz found ourselves watching Despicable Me. I don't know if you've ever watched that movie. Uh, We're going through a whole new season of movies that we're starting to watch now that we're completely unfamiliarized with. There is this cartoon called uh, Curious George. Have you ever heard of that? We we didn't know about that before. Now we know. uh, We can actually uh, uh, quote some episodes. Uh, Despicable Me is 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 a sweet movie of a villain called Thelonious Grew and three sweet little orphan girls. And, and the girls need him. The girls need him to rescue them. And throughout the movie, th- they break his heart. And this hard, harsh thief who steals the moon has his heart broken by three sweet little girls. But our reality is that we're not three sweet little girls who break the heart of a villain. Our reality is that we are the villain ourselves. We were the ones who sinned against God and offended Him. The created order shaking their fists to the creator of the universe with the folly that would be equal to an ant standing against a mighty elephant. We are the villains, and God is good and perfect in every way. He did not adopt us because we were lovable. He adopted us because He is lovable and good and worthy of praise and adoration. Romans 5.8 says this, But God shows His love for us that while we were still Sinners, Christ died for us. God loves the unlovable, and He gives His Son for 
us. Friends, if pride is part of your Christianity, you have not yet understood the gospel. If there is anything in you that makes you think, I deserve the favor of God, you need to go back to the basics and you need to understand that God saved you when you had nothing to offer, when you had no good thing to offer, but He loved you and He redeemed you. This is the message of Christmas, that this little baby would take on flesh and would come, not for sweet little girls who break other people's hearts, but for the unlovable villain who would raise his fist against Almighty God. Ephesians 2, 12 and 13, Remember that you were at a time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Oh, but verse 13 is here in the Bible as well, and it says, But now in Christ, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Oh, what great message of hope. Friends, God's heart is tender towards us because of Christ. He calls us not to be servants, but sons and daughters. We get to share of Christ's inheritance. All that is His is ours if we simply come to Him in humility and believe God's promise. Will you do that this Christmas? Would you pray with me? Father, how lovable you are, how wonderful your son is. We're thankful for him. Lord, there's so many things that could be distracting before our eyes today, but we need to remember that every season is about Lord, may we cherish him. Lord, may during this Christmas season, may we uphold him as wonderful and lovely. Lord, may we proclaim Christ as the hope of this world. May we uphold him as our only hope to our children. Lord, may those around us know that Christ is the reason for our living. Thank you for him. We praise you, Lord, and we ask that you cause our hearts to love him more and more every day. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.